Welcome to the Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we discussed the Bulls in the NBA, learned about the underworld of the Field Museum, and met a rising star in the literary community. All this plus the Trump Diaries, AWCYFM, and Size Matters, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for January 31st, 2020. Mario Smith chatted with ESPN's Doris Burke about all things basketball. Burke spoke about MJ and the Bulls, the state of the NBA today, and much more. This interview was recorded prior to the tragic death of Kobe Bryant. News from the service entrance with Mario Smith airs Thursdays at 2. Joining me on the phone right now is, in my humble opinion, the best basketball analyst on the planet Earth. Doris Burke joins us on the show. Doris Burke is uh, seen on ESPN. How you doing, Miss Burke? I am superb. Recently returned from Toronto this morning. I missed all of the Zion hoopla last night, but uh, trying to catch up on it today. Real quick, talking about that, he's a phenom. That that's clear. What part of his game, as it stands right now, in your opinion, will we be um, really talking about in the next? four or five years from now? Well, probably the most eye-catching thing he does and the, the most pressure he puts on a defense is what he does in the open floor and at the rim. I mean, this guy is just an incredible physical specimen. He, you know, bigger than LeBron James, uh, and yet he sort of has the same explosion that we saw from LeBron early. I was reading an article as we were sort of anticipating his return last night and, you know, there's a great sports performance lab that a lot of teams and NBA players go to to sort of maximize their physical abilities, that P3 sports performance. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, the, the doctor who founded it said uh, some of the metrics that Zion was delivering in their performance lab were unlike any athlete they had ever sort of studied, and I thought, wow, okay, I can't wait to see what this kid can do on an NBA stage, and last night was just the beginning. It's going to be fun. I think I think the league may have uh, may have hit on the one with this one. This is going to be an interesting time to, to, to watch NBA basketball, especially with him in it. I want to shift for a second and talk about you. You, you first, I, I challenged my, my friends um, – when talking about you, if your jumper was still, you know, hot, <laughs> can you st- can you still drop one from three? Are you still like, you know? Here's the truth about my game. Uh-huh. And I, used to, I used to tease Billy Donovan, uh, of whom I am a classmate in, in uh, Providence, 1987. Right. I used to tease him all the time. You're the second best point guard in the class of 87. <laughs> but Mario, but Mario, the truth of the matter is the only thing I had over Billy at that time was my physique was better. That's it. Oh, Every wow. other aspect. <laughs> no. Uh, my game was all dribble drive. I could get anywhere I wanted. My handle was great. I spent a ton of time at the free throw line. I spent my entire career hunting for a jump shot that could balance my drive ability. So truth <laughs> be told, I couldn't shoot then and I can't shoot now. <laughs> I've seen video of you, and I know that that's not true. And I've seen recent <laughs> video of you just picking a ball up and dribbling it, and, and you, you still got it. You could still go. If you had well, to. Uh, let me tell you this. Like, so you know that expression, the mind believes and the body won't follow. <laughs> I, I live so, by that. 
yes. six six weeks, literally the last time I tried to play somewhat competitively was six weeks after I delivered my second child, which was about 25 years ago. Hmm. And that that saying dawned on me, and I thought, you know, you might want to turn your attention in a, a different direction. <laughs> I walked in a gym with my best friend a few years ago. It was a basketball yeah. laying on the floor. I picked it up. I shot it from three. It went in, and I said, that's it. I'm never shooting again. <laughs> How can I top that? I'll never do it again. Um, I love it. I want to talk real quick about a couple of things. One, I want to talk to you about women's athletics in the United States. And Mm -hmm. I'm I'm curious your thoughts about where we are, U.S. soccer, U.S. women's soccer aside, where we are. um, WNBA just signed uh, or just got some really nice uh, uh, perks, if you will, for their players. Um, But women's athletics in the United States – what is your your take on that at the moment? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a great question, and I was struck by something Val Ackerman said yesterday, or I'm sorry, two days ago, sort of uh, memorializing David Stern in New York City in, in what looked like a wonderful celebration. I was traveling to a game and could not go. Uh, but she said, I hope that history in the long view remembers David Stern uh, as one of the most important figures for accelerating the growth of women's sports in the country. Because of the support, the creation of the WNBA, the great run of the 96 Olympic team, which which was a precursor to the WNBA. Listen, I, I've said this often, Mario, um, without women's basketball, I don't ever get to a place where I am now fortunate to be, and that's sitting courtside quite quite often in the wintertime and throughout the NBA as as a color analyst. Um, You know, coverage of women's basketball in college was my first break. I played in the Big East. The Big East offered me an opportunity. It was solely by accident that I get an opportunity to call men's basketball. Literally, someone doesn't show up at the Providence Civic Center, and they have to call me out of desperation, and that begins my career. Hmm. Like, I use my small sample size as sort of, we're progressing... And you can be pleased with the progress, but you can also think, boy, we've got a long way to go. You just mentioned the WNBA collective bargaining agreement. And they just, they literally just put in place um, certain things. They raised the floor of, of the salary cap mm-hmm. so that the, the lower level players come up to a legitimate place. They had to take care of the best players in the league in terms of their financial picture, and they did. Um, but I, I guess I would say I'm thrilled at the progress and want to keep pushing for more. Um, this week, Kobe Bryant made a very interesting statement, mm. interesting to me. I have, Just to uh, quote him real quick, Kobe, uh, quote, I think there are a couple of players who could play in the NBA right now, t- talking about uh, WNBA players. Um, mm. I think I, I think there are a couple of players who can play in the NBA right now, honestly, close, close quote, quote, there's a lot of players with a lot of skill that could do it, close quote. And then he listed Diana Taurasi, Maya Moore, and Elena Deladon. The game has changed from the heyday of, you know, elbow to the face. You looked mm-hmm. at me funny. Here, I got you when you get back down court. It's not as physical as it used to be. It's still very physical, but not as physical as it used to be. And you can't hand check. And I think because you can't hand check, he might be right. What do you think? So it's so interesting because I saw the, the comment and my first instinct was to think, well, women see it 
they feel it, they think it, and their basketball skills are as highly refined. The one thing in the back of my head was there still seems to be such physical differences between men and women. And I mean that, you know, physically, but the biochemics, the strength, all of it, right? So, but I haven't played in the NBA. I've never, you know, pretended to have played or coached in the NBA in my coverage of the league. And so I went right to people I knew. And I uh, texted Jalen Rose. Uh, and then I texted Dino Oriema. And I said, guys, I said, I am the last person who wants to underestimate these women because I, I know their basketball IQ is at the highest level possible, regardless of gender, right. those women included. And, you know, sort of Gino's response was, I'm not, I, you know, I didn't see or hear the full context of the interview. I find it fascinating, but I worry about the physical differences, too. Jalen Rose, on the other hand, said to me, I agree. And it was Mario for the exact same reason you said. Hmm. The game is no longer about physical intimidation. The rules have so leveled the playing field for players like Steph and Trey, those who are not built, say, like a Zion Williamson. And it's more pace and space. So it's hard. You know, I, I have never stepped between the lines of an NBA game. So for me, I'm, I'm evaluating skill and, and feel and IQ and all that, saying yes. Mm-hmm. For, for Jalen and Kobe to say it, I was like, wow, yeah. that's incredible. So what's next? You know, does anybody... Does anybody act on it and, and see and test it? I don't know. Well, I think the place you would do it would be an all-star game. If you're going to try to, if you if you want to see, does it work? Because one, the all-star game for the first at least quarter is really like the NFL Pro Bowl game. It's not a mm-hmm. lot of not a lot of uh, defense being played. But I think they could do it. And the three he named definitely have what it takes, at least offensively, to be able to really make a mark on a team but you know the, the the world is changing and and anything is is uh is possible but that was a very interesting thing that kobe said i i felt like that will open up the dialogue to the possibility of women playing in the uh nba we're talking with doris burke from espn um one thing i've always wanted to ask you well i'm gonna ask you about the chicago bulls i'm just trying to figure out how to say this without cursing on the radio but i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna Put that to the side for a moment. One thing I've always found fascinating about you is your knowledge of the game and how you call a game. Where did that come from? And I don't mean to be offensive. And I'm just, it's it, you're different than a lot of people who call the game. You see it differently. How did you develop that skill? You know, I, I think I just, I've always been a fan, to be perfectly honest with you. When I was a seven-year-old little girl, we moved from New York to New Jersey, and there was literally a park directly next to my house, and I picked up a ball, and since the age of seven, I've been watching, playing, coaching, or now announcing games. Hmm. Like, it's ingrained the very fiber of what I do. Far too often, Mario, it frankly is probably shaped a little bit too much of my life in terms of when I was a kid, the confidence, the, you know, how you defined yourself, all of those things. I so appreciate the compliment. As you know, in my business, um, you could be in a room with two different people. They could be discussing the same announcer, sports announcer, regardless of sport, and you might have opinions 180 degrees from, from one another. And that's just the nature of what I do. So, 
one, I appreciate that you think I do a good job. Oh, and, I do. Uh, and I just, I think I just love the game, to be perfectly honest with you. I have I have an appetite to learn more about it. If I don't know these these coaches at every level, women's college, men's college, the NBA, they've all, you know, opened their practices. Come on in. This is what I'm doing. Um, and I've got great resources at ESPN in terms of, you know, Jeff Van Gundy, Hubie Brown, Mark Jackson, you name, you know, an analyst. We've got incredible guys who have uh, who've been great. But I just love it, and I've been I've been doing it a long time, and I've had great teachers, and so I'm I'm I, I'm so lucky. It's sometimes I pinch myself. <laughs> um, now for the most uncomfortable part of this interview, the Chicago Bulls. Um, from an outsider's well, from a national standpoint, mm-hmm. how do people view what has happened and what is happening to the Chicago Bulls? Well. You know, I only hear uh, national announcers when games are called, and and I mean this in no disrespectful way, but obviously we're not maximizing the number of looks at the Chicago Bulls this year. So I get a lot of perspective from Stacy and Neil and Adam and mm-hmm. you know the guys who are calling your game, and then and then what my eyes see. Um, the you know it's interesting for me because you know MJ, Larry, and Michael started my fandom mm. but you know think about how uh influential michael jordan has been to all of our nba fandoms and so the one thing and it's interesting i said to to someone recently in the organization I, when i had them i said you know in preparation for the game as i'm watching the the arena feels different to me it's mm. doesn't doesn't maybe look as packed it doesn't seem to be as much positive emotion and, you know, I think there was this sort of a little bit of a, yeah, I think it's starting to have a, an effect. Um, and that was striking because I'll tell you the truth, boy, when I used to watch playoff games, Mario, and they would take the introductions live. Oh, yeah. The, goose, the goosebumps on my arms as that video played. And now, and you just like, Eve, I can hear it. Think of... Think about all your great sports memories. They're defined by either the play-by-play's voice mm-hmm. describing and documenting a moment or perhaps the iconic introductions of your favorite teams. And so I don't know um, I, what, I would, what I would assume. And obviously, you know, Wendell going down, that hurts. You guys have dealt with some injuries. You look at some of the young talent like Zach Levine. Yeah. He look. He has played himself into the conversation of All Star. Whether he gets there because of the record, I don't know. Um, so I'm I'm curious. I would assume, just like every other organization in the league, at the end of the season, you do a top down uh, organizational examination. What's working? What's not? And where do we go from here? <laughs>
John and Jamie chatted with Tim Bratley and Angela Lorenzo about the Night of Ideas this week at the Field Museum. Bratley and Lorenzo discussed the worldwide program that Chicago is now a part of, the secret bat cave underneath the Field Museum, and Jamie's deep fear of mummies. Radio Free Bridgeport airs every Tuesday, Drive Time. Tim, tell us a little bit about what you do over there, actually, first of all. So I am the uh, board relations and events manager, and so I work in our uh, development office, and I uh, work with our board of trustees, but also uh, oversee a lot of the events that we do at the Field Museum. Okay, so you're an ops guy, basically. Pretty much, yes. Yeah, they okay. keep me busy for sure. Yeah, so you're the you're the me over there. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 keep the lights on. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, tell us a little bit about this event because this is, is a big worldwide gala, as John mentioned. Uh, there's stuff going on in France. There's stuff going on here. How did, how did you guys even get involved with this, first of all? Absolutely. So the uh, Night of Ideas is on January 30th, which is this Thursday from 6 to midnight at the Field Museum. Uh, they were, the French consulate office here in Chicago approached us, uh, being, I think back in the spring of 2019, about potentially being a host venue uh, here in Chicago. It is a global event, as you uh, said. It's in its about fifth year of inception, and uh, the Cultural Ministry of France started it to kind of uh, have a global event celebrating culture, arts, thought, philosophy. Uh, it's in venues all over the globe. It's in cities all over the globe all on one evening. Uh, in Here in the United States, it's been in LA, uh, New York, at the Brooklyn Public Library. But this is the first time it's gonna be in Chicago. And they approached us last spring, and it was kind of a no-brainer to uh, to have it at the Field Museum and uh, uh, be a, uh, serve as a host venue. Tell us a little bit about that. The museum itself uh, is a globally recognized collection, and, and uh, tell folks a little bit about what you know, I know there's a lot of interesting stuff about it. Yeah, so the Field Museum's been around since 1893. It served as a, a overflow of all the artifacts and exhibits that were brought in for the World's Fair here in Chicago. Uh, and they started a museum uh, with a uh, initial endowment from Marshall Field, the um, department store mogul, uh, thus the name Field Museum. So we've been around, we're in our 126th year of existence, and Field Museum fuels a journey of discovery across time to enable solutions for a brighter future rich in nature and culture. And so what that means is uh, we have our iconic exhibitions that everyone is aware of, especially anyone who grew up in Chicago. They know about the Fighting Elephants in Stanley Field Hall. They know about Sioux. Uh, but what a lot of people don't know is that we are a global research institution. Uh, we have 40 million specimens and artifacts in our collection that are all housed in the building over by the lakefront. Uh, and every single day, our scholars uh, and researchers, scientists, postdocs, curators, they're doing active research each and every day on these specimens and artifacts, and they're making new discoveries every single day. So when it comes to something like being approached uh, to host Night of Ideas uh, alongside the French consulate, uh, it's kind of a no-brainer. It kind of fits in with our mission and what we do on a, every single uh, every single day. Now you can't you can't have all of those things out on exhibit right now. So you must have a giant like bat cave Correct. filled with this kind of stuff. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the bat cave full of stuff because I really dig that. Yeah, kind of stuff. the the statistic that is thrown around is less than one percent is actually on display for the public. So if you've been to the Field Museum, uh, there are. Uh, three public areas where we have all the exhibits for uh, the Griffin Halls of Evolving Planet where all the dinosaurs are, or our Egypt exhibit where we have the mummies and uh, antiquities from Egypt. Uh, But below 
uh, two floors subterranean, we have our collections resource center, which houses uh, many of these specimens and artifacts uh, that is not open to the public, as well as up above Stanley Field Hall, which is our main hall. Up on the floors, uh, on the third floor, you'll see there are uh, labs and collection areas. Uh, they've done a good job, our facilities team, our scientists, to kind of find locations in every crevice of, of, the, of the building to store and preserve all these artifacts. Mm -hmm. Now, John, do you go in the mummy hall? I won't go in the mummy hall because I'm, I'm scared so, of mummies. So when I was a kid uh, in the 80s, the, uh, as Ricky Gervais would say, Tutankhamun, uh, so the King Tut uh, exhibit came, and that I was fascinated. I mean, and so I think uh, I, I required that my mother bring me there, like on a weekly basis. Um, and then at some point, I was frightened by the mummies, uh, and uh, and I stopped going. But. Yeah, I mean, I can't go in that room. I'm afraid they're going to get up and start chasing me around. I've well, seen those movies. Yeah. Vivid memories as a kid were absolutely the Egypt and everything um, Egypt in the space. And then um, I remember a room of like kind of visual illusions, like a large chair. And um, I don't know, what do you call the room, Jamie, where there's one side of it smaller? but Death it's just, trap. I call it a death <laughs> trap. <laughs> Anyways, those are the things I remember most. Uh, well, it's a good thing. We, there's a there's an overnight program uh, where you can spend the night in the museum called Dozen with a Diagnose, but you guys have aged out of that. So I have? You don't have to. Oh, <laughs> yeah. man. Oh, man. Uh, we're also joined by Angela from the French Consulate, who's deeply involved in this. Welcome. How you doing? Hi, good. Sorry. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. yeah. So tell us a little bit about uh, the state of France's involvement in this. Because, I mean, you guys, uh, I I'm not, I'm kind of making a joke here, but you guys actually do have a large uh, cultural, uh, world cultural program that you guys export to uh, Europe and obviously to America. So this this program's been going on for about five years, and it's it's not new to you guys. Why did you bring it to the Midwest, number one? And number two, what have you guys learned from, from doing this for so many years around the world? Well, um, I, I actually can't speak to uh, historical uh, editions of Night of Ideas because I've only worked here in Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, so it's the first one, like mm -hmm. you know. Um, but so it was it was started by the Institut Francais, like you said, um, kind of the purveyor of French culture mm -hmm. abroad uh, five years ago. Um, and why why the Midwest? I mean, why not? Uh, we were kind of one of the only big cities in the U.S. who hadn't done it yet. Mm -hmm. New York had so done it. So you're saying you we were the last choice? No. That's what you're saying. I, that's what I'm hearing right here. No. Okay. No. No, 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 no. Not at all. Not at all. Um, yeah, so we're really pumped that it's, it's here in Chicago, uh, finally. And I've been... Um, uh, keeping track of all of the other like Facebook events all over the world, the Night of Ideas one, mm -hmm. and we're killing it. We're winning. We're beating New York. Take that. Okay, that's good. I'm glad to hear that because they're the, they're the real second city. Talk, talk a little bit about the programs you've got going on because you've got three lectures. You have some uh, events for the public as well. But I, I believe the entire night is supposed to be a global collaboration, right? You guys are supposed to be uh, talking with all the other events going on around the globe. Now, some of these events obviously are – uh, are going to be time shifted. You know what I mean? Some of these things are happening at the night when we're in the daytime. Talk a little bit about how that's all going to work and what people are going to see. I can speak to the uh, actual logistics of what the event looks like, and Angela can chime in on some of the uh, specific uh, presenters. But the way we have it set up, the Field Museum is a massive building if you've ever visited. Uh, and it's 6 to midnight this Thursday, and we have programs 
panelists, speakers that are literally all over the building. It's kind of a choose your own adventure. So as you arrive to the museum, you get a full schedule and program of timing of who is speaking and what location. And the way we've set it up is most of these panelists, lectures, performers, they're inside a lot of the museum's iconic exhibit uh, exhibitions. So one is in Sue's gallery. So you'll be able to hear from some of our presenters in uh, Sue's shadow, uh, Sue the T-Rex. So, um, so that's kind of how we set it up, uh, which is really fun. Uh, I think it'll be a, a fun experience for uh, for the guest. Yeah. So you, you mentioned there were there are three kind of bigger uh, keynote lectures all happening in like the huge historic Stanley Field Hall. Um, and those are uh, Natalie Moore and Amanda Williams to start, and then um, Michael Greenstone, um, the uh, former chief economic advisor under the Obama administration, and then um, a Franco-Congolese novelist named Alain Mabanku. They're kind of our, our, our big keynotes, but then we have 150 other speakers um, in for six hours of programming throughout um, the entire museum. So there's kind of something for everyone. Like you said, choose your own adventure. And how did you guys choose the people that you wanted to address the people here in Chicago? Because it is an, a, a kind of an eclectic mix. You've got some people that have been around. There's somebody that works at another radio station that I'm not going to mention. That's over there. <laughs> but you, you, you mentioned, a, you know, a Congolese novel. How did you why did you pick the people you did to address the Chicago community? Um, that's a great question. So our, our biggest thought partner um, for the event is the University of Chicago. So if um, you have a look at the programming, a lot of the kind of scholars and thinkers come from um, the University of Chicago. Um, but with regards to um, the um, kind of honored guests, um, including Alain Mabancou and a few other um, French thinkers and talents were, were flying in. Um, we're kind of, uh, we, we went from our kind of themes. We wanted to um, kind of target uh, important conversations in Chicago and then figure out who the right kind of French character uh, would be who could speak to those. Um, Topics. We wanted to be like plugged into the pulse of the city and then find a way to um, bring in a French like influence on that in that conversation. That makes sense. How are the events connected? Are there uh, conversations that are happening in multiple places at once or? Uh... Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so like I mentioned, there's there's 150 speakers in, in six hours from like 35 institutions. So it'll be panels, it'll be talks, um, performances throughout the museum, like art installations. Um, there's a lot going on. And one, one example, as Angela was mentioning, to bridge the French culture and the French influence with Chicago is uh, and I'm really excited about it, and I know nothing about it, is Jerome uh, Thomas, I believe, who is a French juggler. Mm -hmm. Is he flying in from France? He is. Uh, yeah, he just arrived. <laughs> okay, great. And he has connected with local Chicago jugglers, and they're actually meeting tomorrow night at the Field Museum for, like, a little workshop. This first time they're ever meeting these uh, juggling performing artists from France and local ones here in Chicago. They're going to get together tomorrow night. Uh, just just them and kind of meet each other and perform and workshop a little bit uh, so they can be prepared for a Thursday night performance, oh, uh, wow. which is going to be really cool. Size matters.
Traffic's backed up all the way down Morgan, and I see why. Uh, looks like your buddy is at it again. Don't call him my buddy. Kyle, what are you doing? Jess, you're just in time. Let's do a new episode about this. About you washing cars? Well, this is the Seisman Sudski Festival, a semi-annual Bridgeport quasi-celebrity car wash and laundry. I do it every... Hold, uh, hold up. Car wash and laundry? Yes, exactly. People bring their dirty clothes to me. I soap them up and I wash their car with them. I got all the neighborhood heroes involved. Uh, over there is a guy who played uh, music on John Daly's show once. How do you do? Go away. And of course, we got Steve from Bernice's. Hi, Jess. Oh, hey, Steve. Oh, well, this seems weirdly pragmatic for you, Kyle. Yes, I know. And just for a few bucks... All Bridgeporters can come to the GoPro Alley for a car and laundry wash. It's like the only time I ever clean anything. Impressive crowd you got here. Man, I've been doing this for years. Where does the other end of that hose go? Oh, I just ran it through the mail slot up to Eric's place. <laughs> he never notices, but it's on the DL, so. Actually, here, hold the hold the hose for a minute. I gotta do this. Oh, oh my God. For the listeners, I should explain. Please don't. Kyle, are you wearing a bikini? Are you wearing my bikini? Hey, I found it on the floor fair and square. Whose floor? Jamie's. I live there, too. That's also my floor. Yeah, but you rent. You don't own it. So, like, you know, whatever, right? Not a thing. I definitely don't want that back. And now what my audience has been waiting for. That's more technically impressive than I would have thought possible. I have to say, everyone's mesmerized by... Is that my blouse? I wonder, are you washing that car with my clothes? don't blame me. Jamie said he didn't want the car wash. He just wanted the laundry did. Oh, here comes the meltdown. Answer the phone. Jamie, I cannot believe you let Kyle wash the car with my clothes. They ain't clothes, the laundry. Gotta go... This week on the Trump Diaries, John Bolton throws Trump's impeachment into turmoil, a pandemic rages in China, the United Kingdom brushes back Trump on Huawei, Pompeo attacks NPR, 50 Americans are seriously hurt in Iraq, Trump tries to bribe black Americans, and Trump's pastor calls for satanic miscarriages. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1099, January 23rd. The House continued to present the impeachment case against Trump, laying out a meticulous case that he abused his power. However, so far, all the signs are that Republicans are unmoved. Nine Republicans, in fact, voted to call the smeared Joe Biden and his son Hunter to the Senate floor. They've also voted against taking witness testimony while complaining the trials, bringing no new evidence to light. Meanwhile, Trump went on Fox News and compared his impeachment to Clinton's, claiming the difference is that, quote, with me, there's no lying. He then made 14 false claims and statements related to impeachment and Ukraine. Following Iranian airstrikes in Al-Assad Air Base in Iraq, 38 American troops were examined for brain injuries. Trump, however, belittled those injuries, claiming they weren't, quote, very serious injuries, just headaches. Trump's comments drew disgust from his own field general in the region who said they were taking troops' injuries seriously. The Pentagon later said that 50 U.S. service members were diagnosed with traumatic brain injuries from that attack. Trump's re-election campaign told the Presidential Debate Commission that Trump may not participate. 
In a letter to the nonpartisan commission, Trump's campaign manager, Brad Parscale, claimed that the board of directors and moderators were all against Trump. Parscale gave no evidence for this claim. Trump has reportedly told ATCs no value in the debates because his own television ratings are high. And Trump whined that his impeachment defense, quote, will be forced to start on Saturday, which is Death Valley in TV. Saturday's impeachment session will begin at 10 a.m. and will last for several hours. Trump bizarrely added that it is, quote, wrong for House managers to use all of their allotted time for their opening argument. Day 1100, January 24th. The House managers concluded their opening arguments in Trump's impeachment trial. House Intelligence Chairman Adam Schiff said Trump, quote, did exactly what our framers feared most. He invited foreign interference in our elections and sold out our country's security for his personal benefit and betrayed the nation's trust to a foreign power. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Gerald Nadler called Trump a dictator during his presentation, arguing that Trump is the first and only president ever to declare himself unaccountable. The House managers also noted that Trump refused to produce a single document or record in response to 71 specific requests, including five subpoenas, and added that Trump also attacked whistleblowers and witnesses who testified in the House probe. Meanwhile, audio and video emerged of Trump ordering Lev Parnas, who Trump claims he doesn't know, to get rid of then-U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine Mary Yovanovitch during a dinner in April 2018 at the Trump International Hotel. The recording, made by Igor Fruman, has Trump saying clearly, quote, get her out tomorrow, I don't care, get her out tomorrow, take her out, okay, do it. Trump spent most of the day tweeting, complaining that proceedings were boring and that the do-nothing Democrats just keep repeating and repeating over and over again the same old stuff on the impeachment hoax. The Supreme Court allowed Trump to enforce the public charge rule, which makes it easier to deny immigrants residency or admission to the country because they have or might use public assistance programs. The decision, issued in response to an emergency petition by the administration, lifts a nationwide injunction imposed by a district judge in New York. Legal challenges to that rule continue. All five conservative justices supported the emergency order without giving their rationale. And in a bizarre sermon, Trump's spiritual advisor, Paula White, called for, quote, all satanic pregnancies to miscarry. A video of the sermon sees White saying, quote, we declare that anything that's been conceived in satanic wombs, that it will miscarry, it will not be able to carry forth any plan of destruction, any plan of harm. The words, which most charitably were likely in metaphor and referring to the Book of Ephesians, stunned anti-abortion activists who support Trump. White recently joined the White House Office of Public Liaison as a religious advisor. Day 1101, January 25th. Trump became the first sitting president to attend and address the anti-abortion March for Life. In his speech, Trump vowed that he would, quote, always defend the very first right in the Declaration of Independence, and that is the right to life. Meanwhile, Betsy DeVos compared the abortion rights debate to slavery, claiming that President Abraham Lincoln, quote, contended with the pro-choice arguments of his day. They suggested that a state's choice to be slave or to be free had no moral question in it. DeVos is allegedly the education secretary. Also, Trump threatened to cut off federal funds to California unless it drops a state requirement that ensures cover abortion. Trump claims it violates a federal ban on the practice. Five other states, including Illinois, have a similar law in the books, but Trump is only targeting California. Trump has previously attacked the state over environmental standards, immigration policies, and homelessness. Department of Health and Human Services giving California 30 days to comply or face the loss of funds. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo abruptly ended an interview with National Public Radio after a reporter asked about the Trump administration's firing of the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. After the interview, Pompeo's aide asked the reporter, Mary Louise Kelly, 
to follow her into Pompeo's private living room, where Pompeo proceeded to berate her, using the F-word many times for being questioned about Ukraine. He then challenged the reporter to find Ukraine on an unlabeled map, which she did. Pompeo then said, quote, people will hear about this. Pompeo later falsely accused the reporter of lying, of misidentifying Ukraine as Bangladesh. She did not. Kelly also holds a master's in European history and being part of a, quote, unhinged conspiracy in a quest to hurt Trump in this administration. Email records show that Pompeo's staff was fully aware of the interview parameters. Trump responded by tweeting, quote, why NPR exist? And implied he would cut off its federal funding, calling it a Democrat Party propaganda operation. Day 1102, January 26th. A forthcoming book from former National Security Advisor John Bolton said Trump told him to freeze all security assistance to Ukraine until officials there helped with investigations into his Democratic rivals. The twin revelation undercut key parts of Trump's defense and have led to a renewed call for new witnesses at his Senate impeachment trial. Bolton's account was included in drafts of manuscript he circulated to close associates and was also sent to the White House for a standard review process on December 30th, 12 days after Trump was impeached. Trump ordered Bolton not to cooperate with the impeachment inquiry. Another video captured Trump saying he wants to, quote, get rid of the then U.S. ambassador to Ukraine during an April 2018 meeting that included Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman. Trump also asked how Ukraine would be able to resist Russian aggression without U.S. assistance during the dinner. Housing Secretary Ben Carson has moved to scrap a policy that withholds federal funds from cities if they don't address segregation as part of an effort to dismantle Obama-era efforts to combat racial disparity in our country. Trump asked his cabinet to find ways to undermine those rules. Mick Mulvaney's Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has also proposed cutting back on data that helps track discrimination in the mortgage market. Trump doubled rates at the Trump National Doral just prior to the announcement that he would address the Republican National Committee's winter meeting there. Trump's hotel raised the per-night rate to $539, which is just $5 below the maximum per-night rate federal government rules permit for a hotel in South Florida. Normally, a room at the Doral costs $254. Day 1103, January 27th. Bolton's confirmation that Trump tried to bribe Ukraine to investigate his Democratic rivals upended Washington as Trump's defense team began their rebuttal. Bolton's account echoed Watergate fame smoking gun tape and heaped new pressure on Republicans to call witnesses. It is likely that Trump's hope for a quick acquittal has been dashed. On Twitter, Trump claimed that he never told Bolton that military aid to Ukraine was conditioned on investigations into Biden and his son. Trump cited his first face-to-face -face meeting with Zelensky at the United Nations in September and asserted he had, quote, released the military aid to Ukraine without conditions or investigations and far ahead of schedule. This is not true. Trump also tweeted that Representative Adam Schiff, quote, has not paid the price yet. He is a corrupt politician and probably a very sick man. Schiff's closing arguments were widely seen as deeply damaging to Trump. Mitch McConnell didn't know that the Trump administration had a copy of Bolton's manuscript and was reviewing it. McConnell, who had pledged total coordination with the White House on the impeachment trial, was blindsided by the news, which also upended a coalition of Republican senators. McConnell had previously floated that he had the votes to get through the trial without calling witnesses. In the aftermath of those revelations, at least three senators broke with his party. Trump's defense team claimed falsely that Joe Biden encouraged the removal of the Ukrainian prosecutor Viktor Shokin because Shokin was investigating Burisma, the national gas company where Biden's son Hunter worked. This is not true. 
Lawyer Pam Biondi made the disproven claims and then repeatedly claimed that Trump's legal team had no choice but to discuss the Bidens and Burisma because the news media had been pressing the issue. This contradicted her own earlier statement that criticized the lack of media scrutiny of the Bidens. Kenneth Starr, serving as Trump's lawyer, made a series of bizarre claims given that he oversaw the impeachment of Bill Clinton in the 1990s. Starting off by saying, quote, like war, impeachment is hell, Starr rambled on about living in an age of impeachment. Trump was reportedly not impressed by Starr's performance. And Barack Obama was caught on tape calling Trump a fascist. The comment came in a phone conversation during the 2016 presidential election with then-candidate Senator Tim Kaine. Obama was urging Kaine to do more to help Hillary Clinton's flagging campaign. Day 1104, January 28th. Trump's defense team rested with a claim that revelations from John Bolton were inadmissible. Bolton said Trump made Ukraine's military aid contingent upon politically motivated investigations. He also worried that Trump was doing favors for autocratic leaders. Trump's lawyer, Jay Sukolo, tried to claim that Bolton's statements were, quote, unsourced manuscripts, which is laughable on its face given that Bolton's book is a first-person account. Mitch McConnell told a closed-door meeting of Republicans he did not have the votes to block Democrats from calling witnesses at the trial yet. And Trump praised Mike Pompeo for berating an NPR journalist. Pompeo reportedly repeatedly swore at Marie Louise Kelly and called her a liar after she asked questions about Ukraine. Quote, that was very impressive, Mike. I think you did a good job on her, actually. In a related story, the State Department removed an NPR reporter from the pool of journalists traveling to Europe and Asia with Pompeo, apparently in retaliation. Day 1105, January 29th. The United Kingdom brushed back Trump and told the USA it would grant Weiwei permission to help build the UK's 5G network, albeit with restrictions. Trump has repeatedly threatened Prime Minister Boris Johnson with a variety of sanctions if Britain worked with the Chinese firm, which is thought to be in cahoots with the Chinese government. The fear is the Chinese government could use back doors in the new 5G network to compromise the so-called Five Eyes Intelligence Partnership. Republican leaders were growing confident they'd be able to block new witnesses and documents and bring Trump's trial to an acquittal as soon as Friday. Few seem to want to hear from Bolton, who said he has damaging details about the pressure campaign on Ukraine. Trump also moved to block the publication of Bolton's book, claiming the content in the book is top secret with significant amounts of classified information that could cause exceptionally grave harm to U.S. national security without citing any specifics. Meanwhile, Trump spent the morning attacking Bolton for his, quote, nasty and untrue book, claiming that Bolton begged me for a non-Senate-approved job, which I gave to him despite many saying, don't do it, sir. He got fired because, frankly, if I listened to him, we would all be in World War VI by now. Members of Trump's legal defense team have made tens of thousands of dollars in donations and campaign contributions to the Republican senators overseeing the impeachment trial. Ken Starr and Robert Ray both gave the maximum amount under law to Mitch McConnell in the summer and fall of last year. Neither man is a constituent of McConnell's. Starr also gave the max to Lindsey Graham. Jay Sukla was donated to Ted Cruz and John Toon. White House Counsel Pat Cipollone and Deputy White House Counsel Patrick Philbin also donated to several Republican Senate candidates. The U.S. budget deficit is now projected to reach $1.2 trillion in 2020, according to a report by the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. The deficit has largely been driven by Trump's tax cuts for the very wealthy. Allies of Trump have been targeting black voters by hosting events with cash giveaways. The events, predominantly in black communities, have seen them hand out envelopes of cash while praising Trump. The giveaways are run by a nonprofit, the so-called Urban Revitalization Coalition, which allows donors to remain anonymous. 
and in surprise, House Republicans are experiencing a fundraising crisis. The Democrats outraised the Republicans by $40 million in 2019. Individual Democratic candidates are continuing to outrage Republican opponents. Trump has an enormous personal war chest, but he has been criticized for not spending it on vulnerable candidates. Day 1106, January 30th. Chief Justice John Roberts denied questions from Rand Paul because his questions contain the name of the alleged whistleblower who began Trump's impeachment. Roberts then told the Senate he will not read the name of the whistleblower aloud or publicly relay any questions that might unmask that official. Wilbur Ross said the Chinese coronavirus epidemic, quote, will help to accelerate the return of jobs to the U.S. The Commerce Secretary then said he didn't want to talk about a victory lap over a very unfortunate, very malignant disease. A poll says that an overwhelming 75% of voters want witnesses to testify in Trump's impeachment trial. 48% say the Senate should not remove Trump from office, while 47% say the Senate should. These are the Trump Diaries. I-94 chatted with Amanda Goldblatt, the author of the new novel, Hardmouth, out now. Goldblatt discussed working as an adjunct professor, working with multiple editors, and the support she has received from the Chicago writing community. I-94, Lumpin's Books and Literature show, airs every Sunday at 11. Let's start at the very beginning, because, I mean, uh, before we even get into the book, as I recall, you started writing the book because you had a family health crisis. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it was your father was diagnosed with cancer. And, of course, that is a... Uh, motif in this book as well. Can you talk a little bit about that being the inspiration for starting this, which uh, again is your first novel as well, correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I had I went through grad school just writing stories, and uh, people around me were working on novels, and I was always like, I'm not going to write a novel until there's something like big enough, something that really is going to flatten me that I really want to devote time to. I'm a very slow writer, so I knew that I didn't want to go into something without fully believing in it or feeling like I needed to do it. Um, in, I think, around 2011, my father was diagnosed with cancer, and I uh, had to do something with all the feelings I, I felt as a result, just basically uh, existential fear that was, uh, you know, grafted onto the idea of, of prospectively losing a parent. Uh, so I just started writing, um, not, you know, what's the opposite, opposite of fantasy fulfillment, like trauma fulfillment. Um, but I use that to just sort of drive me forward into starting the book. I should say, luckily, um, my father recovered like so quickly that my partner sometimes forgets that he even had cancer. Did you not finish before it he got better. Remission? He got better, and I was still writing. Okay. But at that point, I was so devoted to the narrator and so the, the story itself. Didn't go down? No. Okay. And I was still like, I still was fi- full of all the feelings, just because I was, you know, we were all in the clear. Things still stuck around for a while. Well, I remember, I can't remember where I read it. Maybe the reader, <laughs> a quote from you that said that you can't imagine anybody writing a novel without something traumatic happening in their life. Yeah, I mean, I think whether it's uh, something dramatic, like a big dramatic, uh, like an accident or a death, or whether it's something that's just marked you in some significant, profound way over many years, um, I don't know. I I write to think often, and uh, I write to figure out my relationship to the world and others. And so I don't... 
It doesn't feel like it could be a casual thing for me to undertake it. What's, I'm guessing you were surprised? You surprised yourself while you were writing? Yeah, in what way do you mean? Well, it sounds like you you don't know what you're thinking or feeling before you write it. So you're probably surprising yourself a lot through, well, with the feelings and the plot. You use a lot of really precise poetic language too. Thank you. Um, So yeah, I guess I'm wondering, did you surprise yourself with one, the feelings that popped up, and also the what you did with the plot and the main character. Yeah, I mean, the prime, my primal reaction was once I heard about the diagnosis was basically like to run, right, to avoid pain, um, and so I understood that that had to be part of my narrator's story or her her forward movement, um, and I also understood it as sort of the end of one understanding of the world and the beginning of a different one, um, which felt like it was like threatening to be, to feel like an end of world scenario. And so when I first started writing the novel, it was, um, my narrator, Denny, uh, convinced herself that the uh, oncoming death of her father was also just like gonna be, gonna mean that the world itself was literally ending. Um, I was writing it, you know, in, in the, in the, I guess, teens, we can call it now. Um, and late aughts, uh, early teens, um, people were writing about the end of the world a lot in, yeah. yeah. I mean, we did a show. So yeah. with uh, Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh Right. Um, and I think her, uh, world, it's not, it's not a real end of the world I feel like there's like a strange bizarre hope to that to severance Uh um but yeah I mean there was there was like a station 11 and like Laura Vandenberg's novel at the time and Jeff Vandermeer stuff and the Jeff Vandermeer yeah Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely and so there was all this stuff in the water and I was like well I don't this is not actually what I'm most interested in writing about um, what happens when I like strip that apparatus away. Um, and then you just end up with a woman on a mountain for a while. <laughs> Have you read Scribe? Oh, no, yeah. I haven't. So we, we talked to her um, a, couple, Hagee. a couple months oh, ago yeah. and she had written a book sort of, again, it's like a funhouse mirror version of your book. Uh, no. there, it's the end of the world kind of post whatever that would be. And she is writing letters for people who are, kind of analogs of Civil War veterans. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's obviously the future, and she's a very isolated figure, and yeah. there's all this kind of magical thinking, which uh, not necessarily present in your book, yeah, but yeah. I wondered if you had come across it. You, you might be No, it sounds really great, though. I'll definitely take a, take a look. You should, and she was a fascinating interview, which you, by the way, can catch in our archive, because she spoke to us here on I-94. <laughs> uh, and that archive is at I-94.org. I'd actually like to back up, though, and talk a little bit about your process, because um, Mike asked a question that I always love to ask of writers, um, which is, did you kind of think out the plot and the narrative at the start, or did everything kind of just come to you and reveal itself to you as you worked on the characters? And I I ask for a reason because um, I'm a writer, my mother's an author, and my mother always refers to herself as a stupid author because (laughs) she gets very bored if she writes everything down and works out the plot in advance. Uh, but she says it has a, it makes it very difficult for her to actually find endings and, and get to where she's going. So I always like to talk to authors about that, particularly because I also 
I believe I read in an interview that you read you wrote most of this on an iPhone with a kind of a wireless keyboard and most of the first draft. Yeah, yeah we're, we're not really looking at the the words. You were kind of keeping that distance. So yeah. if you don't mind digging down into that for a couple of minutes, uh, I'd yeah. be personally very interested in that. For sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I indeed wrote. Uh, through my phone and a wireless keyboard, like sitting on the front porch of uh, our place when we lived in Ypsilanti, Michigan, um, which is where I started the book. And um, I am not, I am not a planner. I don't, um, I regrettably know this from a cousin approaching me and asking me whether I was one or the other at a wedding uh, a handful of years ago. He was like, well, are you a planner or a pantser? Which is, Internet lexicon, which you've maybe heard. I yeah. Not. Um, it's basically like exactly like do you plan things ahead or do you fly by the seat of your pants? Um, oh. Yes, that's, that's what pantser is. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's you, Michael. You're, you're the pantser in the family. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I don't, it's difficult for me. I have a very studied, almost nearly didactic relationship to structure and plot. I have to be really careful about that stuff because I am so much more interested in language, character, uh, like sort of smaller scale scenario. Um, and I'm interested in causality, but in terms of, you know, when you're working on a short story, you can rely on your your like sort of uh, intuitive sense of causality. Um, but when you're working on something like a novel, you have to actually think about this larger structure, and I spent a lot of time thinking about larger structures. Um, so I wrote a f I wrote wrote a full draft, like your mom, kind of figuring things out as I went. And there's a reason it took me, you know, six years to to write this before an agent ever saw it. And it's because I was going back into the draft over and over again and figuring it out. And I had different sort of planning methods throughout. Um, for a long time, I was very fond of post its, mm -hmm. and I would just have a grid of post its on my office wall, uh, and I would move and they would have sort of like a summaries or uh, keywords of scenes and I would just move things around and I would figure it out that way and then I would figure out what needed to be filled in, what could be excised. Um, and I didn't actually find an ending until um, actually until I found more grief, which was when both my grandmothers died the same year. And then I could actually write the end. I don't think I was prepared to write the end before that because I felt like... Um, I didn't know where the narrator needed to go, and I didn't have perhaps the emotional depth to end it. Mm -hmm. um, Six years yeah. is a long time to hold on to your bait. Was it hard to give it up? You know, or it, was it a relief? I was ready. <laughs> At 2 p.m. will be the latest part of the Coding for Kids series, this time tackling assembly language. <laughs> um, assembly language... These kids these days, they're, they, they're learning Python. They're learning Java. They're learning JavaScript, CSS. They're learning C++. They're learning all these cushy languages. It's time, it's time according to, according to you know, society... Uh, it's it's time that kids start learning the real stuff. I mean, they're we're getting farther away from the true form of coding, and that is assembly language. I mean, we're basically writing ones and zeros here. I mean, well, it's 
you need to set a groundwork for coding. You you can't just learn the easiest thing and mm-hmm. expect to be able to take that forward. You know, the more basic and the more sort of uh, low level of the language that you're learning to code or program in, the more prepared you are to move on to those next steps and you'll have a fluency that you can't get anywhere. So why that's why it makes a lot of sense, at least to me, teach them assembly language, sure. you know? Um, you know, you can't it's, it's just like as a as a as a physician, as a doctor, you you can't really do your job well unless you know atomic physics. There's there's no way that a doctor can really be good at their job unless they know how subatomic particles you know interact. In the same way, somebody can't be good at coding. Unless they know, unless they unless they can read exactly the way that a computer reads, um, and that's that's the philosophy behind the coding for kids assembly line language. Um, it's 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 uh, it's just a, a smart idea. It's a it's a very smart idea. It's a wonderful um, opportunity. wonderful opportunity for children to be able to understand just exactly what makes those Fortnite characters go, <laughs> and ultimately what all of the 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 gaming out there is based on. Every floss. Every one of one where they have their hands up and they're shaking them. Mm-hmm. Every single time a character shakes their hand or puts on a new a new bodysuit or builds a fort, that's all ones and zeros. And that's all assembly language at the end of the day. Broadcast every Saturday, eight to nine PM. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.